Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I then, what was happening 100 years ago this week. And it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is December 15, 2017. This is Episode 50, and our guests this week include Dr. Sean Adams on the role of coal in America during World War I, Mike Schuster with the story of the disastrous Halifax explosion, Candy Martin from the Gold Star Mothers telling us about an upcoming European tour, Brandon Mazur from the 100 Cities 100 Memorials Project in Portland, Maine, Joel and Hayden introducing our newest site at www.cc.org, Horse Heroes from Brook, USA, and Catherine Akey with The Buzz, the centennial in social media. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. The official bulletin is the government's Daily War Gazette, which you can read yourself on our website like a daily newspaper at www.cc.org bulletin, with each issue being republished on the centennial of its original publication date. It's an awesome primary information source for you nerds, history buffs, teachers, and of course for us here at World War I Centennial News. Well, ever since it started publishing in May, we've been seeing nearly daily and certainly weekly articles about coal. Yeah, coal. The availability, the industry, the pricing, the mining, the transportation, the application. Coal keeps coming up in our editorial meetings. Now, our instincts say that this is a strategically important World War I subject, like airplanes, suffrage, the draft, and food. But as we attack the subject, we keep feeling that the articles that we're reading don't really get down to the strategic issues about coal in World War I. We just keep seeing hints and snippets like the clearly related nationalization of the railroads, or the nationalization of shipbuilding, which leads to a decision to build a vast fleet of coal-burning instead of oil-burning merchant ships, and so on. What we need, we reasoned, is a coal historian. Well, it turns out that there just aren't a whole lot of them. But Catherine, bless her, has found Dr. Sean Adams, who's joining us today as soon as we jump into our Wayback Machine and roll back to the second week of December 1917 to see how coal plays into the war that changed the world. This winter of 1917 is still considered one of the coldest on record for most of the eastern seaboard and beyond. A giant blizzard is whipping through the northeast, and as you'll learn later, has a pretty harsh effect on the Halifax Harbor explosion. One of the main sources for staying warm in this bitterly cold winter is, well, coal. So now we're joined by Dr. Sean Adams, professor of history and chair at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Welcome, Dr. Adams. Well, thanks for having me. So, Dr. Adams, as we mentioned in our setup, it seems like coal, its mining, transportation, and use in this moment in American history is seen as a pretty strategic, important issue. What is coal's role in World War I America? 
coal is really ubiquitous in World War One America. It's used for motive power. The railroads are actually the largest single consumer of coal. It's used for home heating, of course, uh, and it's used for industrial power. Coal is used to generate steam, and, and this is a period in which steam power is really the kind of main source of power for most industry. So coal is literally everywhere in late 19th, early 20th century, and Americans are finding that they're more and more dependent on it. If we look at the, the growth of the coal industry right around the time of 1917, it's pretty amazing. The, the production of coal doubles, for example, from 1880 to 1900, and then it doubles again from 1900 to 1920. So around this time, uh, Americans are mining and consuming about 600 million tons of coal. So it really is the main source of energy. This is the age of coal. In December of 1917, it would have been very, very common uh, to have what uh, urban Americans call the coal famine. The United States is awash with coal, but the problem is you have to transport it, uh, particularly to urban centers. And winter is a time in which the demand for coal is highest. It's when the cold weather hits, people are trying to buy their coal. They should have probably bought it in the summer when prices were cheaper and supplies more abundant, but you know, humans being human, uh, many of them waited until the last minute or they couldn't afford to purchase their coal when it was um, less expensive. And so if we look at the situation in December of uh, 1917 and why it was rather unique, it's because the United States views coal as a pretty vital strategic element uh, in World War I. As I said, it's used for motive power, it's used for home heating, it's used for industrial power. And so these coal shortages that were pretty endemic in the winter would have been seen as a national security issue now that the United States is at war. And so in order to, to remedy some of these issues with the distribution of coal and with the production of coal, President Wilson and the U.S. government formed the U.S. Fuel Administration. This was in September of 1917, and they put at its head a guy named Harry Garfield, who was the president of Williams College and a lawyer, and who knew absolutely nothing about the coal industry, uh, as far as I can tell. And, you know, if you look at the kind of situation that Garfield stepped into, he stepped into an industry that was, that was booming rapidly. It had had uh, a very, very, very uh, disorganized past, recent past. For example, if you look at the main in issue that um, affected the coal industry in 1917, it was probably the, the Ludlow Massacre, which had occurred in April of 1914, in which at least 18 people were killed by troops hired by the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, and, and also the Colorado National Guard was involved out in Ludlow, Colorado. And it was a kind of a cap to a really extended, prolonged battle between labor and capital that had occurred out there. Um, and so labor and capital in, in the coal industry were kind of going at each other hammer and tongs. And so what Harry Garfield walks into is an industry that's characterized by a lot of labor strife, uh, an industry that is uh, very, very productive, but has a problem getting their product to the consumers. And so what the U.S. Fuel Administration decides to do is a couple of things. Um, first of all, they fix prices, which is not all that popular. They fix the price of bituminous coal, for example, at $3 a ton. Now, to give you some perspective, before the war, the price ranged between about $1 and $1.10 a ton. So they're fixing prices at a relatively high level. Producers like that, consumers don't. He also uh, tries to manage the real problem with coal, which is not mining coal, it's actually distributing coal. And so the problem there deals with the railroads. And the problem is that uh, Harry Garfield is not in charge of the railroads, he's in charge of fuel. 
And so what the U.S. Fuel Administration does is it encourages uh, the increased mining of coal. And in fact, we do see a pretty dramatic increase in the amount of coal that's produced in the United States at the time. But that coal sits at the mouth of the mine, and it can't get to industrial producers in late uh, 1917. It can't get to consumers. And so one of the things that uh, Harry Garfield is going to do uh, moving forward is he's going to actually issue uh, an incredibly unpopular order called the Closing Order. And this is in 1918. And basically what he does is he shuts down industry from January 18th through the 22nd and then announces that uh, industry will be shut down. They call them Idle Mondays from January 28th to the 25th of March, 1918. So he literally shuts down the country so that uh, railroad cars that are full of coal can actually redress this, this, this kind of backlog in transportation. The U.S. Fuel Administration does a lot of things. And you know, one of the things it does, for example, is it produces beautiful posters that you can purchase um, online or at least view online that say things like, order your coal now so that folks wouldn't necessarily suffer as much as they did in, in the winter months because of these coal um, shortages. The idea was that the U.S. Fuel Administration would handle the fuel markets, but eventually the only way that these problems were resolved was with the creation of the U.S. Rail Administration, which is, is another story for another time, I guess, but it was really the railroads that were the cause of a lot of these problems and heating markets in December of 1917. Dr. Sean Adams, professor of history and chair at the University of Florida in Gainesville. His most recent book is Home Fires, How Americans Kept Warm in 19th Century America. Before we move on with the show, we want to give you a little heads up on our episodes for the coming weeks. Next week, for our holiday episode number 51, we have a special treat for you. We're producing a 1917 vintage holiday mixtape. The entire episode is designed to provide you with a wonderful period holiday mood ambience, featuring the popular holiday music from 1917, and a special message from the Chief of Chaplains of the U.S. Navy, Rear Admiral Margaret Grun Kibben. The following week is our New Year's episode number 52. Can you believe it? 52 episodes in the can. Anyway, we're going to be replaying our favorite segments from 2017 and 1917 in a content collage that should be a lot of fun. Then we'll roll into January with our first episode of 2018 coming around January 5th. We're going to kick off the year by putting 1917 into perspective and taking a high-level look forward into what to expect through 1918. It's going to be a very dynamic year, and we'll be keeping you up to date with World War I Centennial News Then, what was happening 100 years ago, and World War I Centennial News Now, what's happening today to commemorate the war that changed the world. In Nova Scotia, two ships collide, resulting in one of the largest man-made explosions in human history, devastating the city with damage and loss of life at a terrible scale. Here to tell us the story is Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator of the Great War Project blog. Thanks, Teo. Here are the headlines. A tremendous explosion in Canadian Harbor. Thousands dead, thousands more injured. The cargo, ammunition, and humanitarian relief. And this is special to the Great War Project. Thousands of miles away from the European battlefields, an unimaginable disaster hits Halifax, Nova Scotia, in Canada. According to historian Martin Gilbert in the Canadian harbor of Halifax, a French merchant ship, the Mont Blanc, 
loaded with munitions for Europe, collided with a Norwegian vessel, the SS Emo, and blew up. More than 2,000 people were killed and 9,000 injured, an astounding one in five of the population of Halifax. This against the backdrop of a massive shipbuilding crusade in the United States to provide the merchant shipping needed for the war in 1918, Gilbert reports. As for the Halifax explosion, a fire on board the French ship ignited her cargo, causing an explosion that devastated the Richmond district of Halifax. The blast, according to historians, was the largest man-made explosion before the development of nuclear weapons, releasing the equivalent of roughly 2.9 kilotons of TNT. According to an account in Wikipedia, the Mont Blanc was under orders from the French government to carry her cargo of high explosives from New York via Halifax to Bordeaux, France. At roughly 8.45 in the morning, she collided at low speed with the unladen Emo, chartered by the Commission for Relief in Belgium to pick up a cargo of food supplies in New York. The resulting fire on board the French ship quickly grew out of control. Approximately 20 minutes later, the Mont Blanc exploded. Halifax was devastated. Nearly all structures within a half mile radius were obliterated. A pressure wave snapped trees, bent iron rails, demolished buildings, grounded vessels, including the Emo, which was washed ashore by the ensuing tsunami and scattered fragments of Mont Blanc for miles. Hardly a window in the city proper survived the blast. Across the harbor, there was also widespread damage. The tsunami created by the blast wiped out the community of the Mi'kmaq Indian Nation, who had lived there for generations. Hospitals quickly filled up. Rescue trains began arriving the day of the explosion from across Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, while other trains from central Canada and the northeastern United States were prevented by blizzards. Construction of temporary shelters to house the many people left homeless began soon after the disaster. Adding to the chaos were fears of a potential second explosion. Uniformed officers ordered everyone away from the area. As rumors spread, many families fled their homes. The confusion hampered efforts for over two hours until fears were dispelled by about noon. Many rescuers ignored the evacuation and naval rescue parties continued working uninterruptedly at the harbor. The initial judicial inquiry found the Mont Blanc to have been responsible for the disaster, but a later appeal determined that both vessels were to blame. And that's one of the stories from the Great War Project a century ago. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. The Great War Channel on YouTube has been producing videos about World War I since 2014, and from a more European perspective. Here's Indy Nidell, the host of the Great War Channel. Attention World War I Centennial News listeners, I'm Indy Nidell, host of the Great War YouTube channel. Fighting continues as 1917 comes to a close, marking the end of another year of mass devastation. Follow the action as we enter 1918, the fourth year of the war, by subscribing to The Great War on YouTube and following us on Facebook. This week's new episodes include Halifax Explosion and Peace in the East. Then, Father Victory, George Clemenceau. And finally, The Road to Independence, Finland in World War I. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. It's time to fast forward into the present to World War I Centennial News Now. This section's not about history, but rather it explores what's happening to commemorate the centennial of the war that changed the world. (laughs) 
In commission news, yesterday, Commander Zoe Dunning, U.S. Navy retired, was sworn in as the newest member of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission. The swearing-in ceremony took place at the commission's headquarters in Washington, D.C. So, how are these commissioners picked, anyhow? Well, Commissioner Dunning, for example, was nominated by House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi. The law that established the commission provided that the 12 members of the Centennial Commission, who serve without pay, by the way, are nominated by the President of the United States, the members of the U.S. Senate, the members of the U.S. House of Representatives, and by the nation's two largest veteran service organizations, the American Legion and the Veterans of Foreign Wars. Thank you for taking on the challenge and welcome Commissioner Dunning. This Week in Remembering Veterans Gold Star Mothers are women who've lost a child in service to our nation. The name comes from the World War I custom of families hanging a banner called a service flag in the windows of their homes. The service flag had a star for each family member serving, with each member represented by a blue star, except those who had lost their lives in service. Those are represented by a gold star. More than a decade after the war ended, a unique and incredible event took place. Gold Star mothers and wives traveled across the Atlantic to visit the battlefields of Europe and the graves of their fallen family members. Next summer, that journey will be retraced by a special cruise and tour. And here to tell us more about it is Candy Martin, the immediate past national president of the American Gold Star Mothers, who is herself a Gold Star mother, having lost her son, First Lieutenant Thomas Martin, U.S. Army, on October 14, 2007, in Iraq. And Candy herself is also a veteran, having served 38 years in the Army. Welcome, Candy. Thank you very much, Taya, for having me this afternoon. Candy, first off, what's the mission of the American Gold Star Mothers organization? American Gold Star Mothers is what I call a time-honored tradition as a veteran service organization. We are almost 90 years old after a result of the World War I activities that happened. And it's, a, it's an organization where we, we turn our sorrow into service. And we also believe that we continue the service that our fallen sons and daughters never got to finish. So in 1930, there was the Gold Star Pilgrimage. Who organized it and what was it? The Gold Star Pilgrimage was a, an act of Congress that was approved. It authorized the money to take the mothers and the wives back to the American cemeteries in Europe to visit their loved ones who were interred over there. Because it was a federal program, it was taken on and it was assigned to the United States Army, namely the quartermaster branch is who took this on. And they reached out to Gold Star mothers and widows, and they would uh, invite them to come on this pilgrimage. Throughout the course of 1930, when it started 30, 31, 32, and 1933, they would sail from New York Harbor over to Europe. And there was roughly about 7,000 of these brave women who made that pilgrimage across the Atlantic to go visit the graves of their fallen heroes. All right, so now you're organizing a centennial tour to revisit Europe and retrace that journey. Tell us about it, please. As a Gold Star mother myself, I've often thought about what it was like for those women to make that pilgrimage. Some of these women had never left their homes, never left their counties, had never left anywhere. And my thought was, 
wow, first of all, they went through a terrible tragedy in their family. And 10 years later, they, they went ahead and they had the opportunity to go visit the final resting place of that loved one. That spoke volumes to me for years. And I've thought, gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful to retrace the steps of some of those women? Many historians have written books. I've talked with family members who have written the account of their great grandmothers and their great aunts who actually made the pilgrimage. And talking with those family members about what it was like for that loved one to, to make that pilgrimage, to, to go over, I thought, gosh, what a way to honor those gold star mothers from 100 years ago and go back and visit the graves of their loved ones. So among the gold star mother organization, we talk, we talk often with each other. And, and I reached out to a friend of mine, Pam Moore, and Pam is a gold star mother from here in Texas where I live. And Pam is a travel agent. And I thought, gosh, let's just pool these resources. So we've put together this uh, Gold Star Pilgrimage and Poppies Tour. And it's going to be a wonderful opportunity not only to retrace history, but to honor and remember those from World War I. And this is just our small part of what we can do to remember those mothers who, like us, lost a loved one 100 years ago. So, Candy, if I'm interested in participating in the tour, learning more, what should I do? You can contact More Travel. The telephone number is 888-327-5806. It's not that long of a cruise. We set sail on the, the Queen Mary II on the 20th of July, 2018. And it will take roughly seven days to get across the Atlantic, about the same amount of time that those brave women did back in the 1930s. And from there, we will be picked up uh, by a, a custom land tour, and we'll be visiting some of the World War I American cemeteries in France and in England. We're also going to add a little fun to it with visiting London Tower and doing some fun activities as well. We will also give the moms a chance to learn a little bit more about a mother or a, a gold star wife from their respective state. So as we are getting those that are signing on for this, we are encouraging them to reach out. We're giving, we're providing the name and they can go in and we'll help them with the research and turn this into a history project as well. We end the tour at the famous American Cemetery Flanders Field, where we hope that there's going to be some poppies there waiting to greet us. And that's going to be very, very special, I believe. The whole tour ends on the 4th of August, where we will fly back to our respective homes from Belgium, and we're really excited about this. Candy Martin, a Gold Star mother, serving the organization, serving our nation, and organizing the 2018 Gold Star Pilgrimages and Poppies Tour. Learn more by following the link in the podcast notes. There's also a poignant article about African-American Gold Star Mothers in the archives of our Wright blog, titled, On a Boat Alone, African-American Wives Post-World War I. Head to www.cc.org slash W-W-R-I-T-E to read about the experience of African-American families as they participated, segregated, in the Gold Star pilgrimages. The link is in the podcast notes. And now for our feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore words and phrases that are rooted in the war. 
Getting on instant messenger, sending a text, or simply meeting up with a friend for coffee. There are many ways that we have to chat with a friend. A quick and light catch-up of conversation. But chatting with a friend has its origin in a darker and definitely less comfortable place than you may think. A chat in the trenches of World War I was another name for a louse. These horrid, itchy pests filled your clothes and got all over you, including getting into your hair. Chatting was the act of picking lice off yourself. And in a very socially companionable, very monkey-ape-Jane-Goodall-reminiscent vision, helping to groom your companions. This was a really important daily task that could fill hours of the day. Something that soldiers could do to pass the time while they helped their comrades pick lice was to engage in small talk. Hence the term chatting. Who knew? So today, chatting live or online, chat rooms and social chats continue with a great deal of vigor, but with a lot fewer lice. See the podcast notes to learn more. In education news, this week, a new issue of Understanding the Great War newsletter came out. This is our official education resource newsletter, published every two months. Each issue focuses on a particular theme, providing educators and students with a robust selection of resources from a wide range of sources. Issue number 10 addresses political consequences and revolutions. The issue includes articles about the Russian Revolution, the Arab Revolt, the French mutinies of 1917, and the Easter Rising in Ireland. The publication is put together by the National World War I Museum and Memorial. Follow the link in the podcast notes to subscribe to a great World War I educational resource and to read past editions. Moving on to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segment about the $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on our local World War I memorials. As you listen to our guest, Tell us about his project. Remember that we're taking grant applications for a second round of awards. The deadline's getting really close, and applications have to be in by January 15th, 2018. Go to www.cc.org/100memorials to learn all about it. This week, we're profiling the Jacob Cousins Memorial Renovation Project in Portland, Maine, one of the first 50 grant awardees. With us to tell us about the project is Brandon Mazur, the project coordinator for the Jacob Cousins Memorial Renovation Project and president of the Friends of the Eastern Promenade. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Brandon, in your grant application, you list the memorial as, quote, the Jacob Cousins Memorial is a key World War I artifact in the history of the Jewish community in southern Maine, which leads to the question, who's Jacob? Yes. Jacob Cousins was the first Jewish soldier from Portland killed in World War I. Um, he was part of the Company C 328th Infantry, which fought in the 47-day uh, battle in the Meuse-Argonne region of France. And then on October 14, 1918, with less than a month before the war ended, um, his unit closed in on the German border and his platoon leader was, was killed. Uh, Jacob then assumed command and was cited for his coolness and bravery until he paid his supreme sacrifice during the war. So, Brandon, can you tell us about the memorial and the restoration plans for it? Yes. The Jacob Cousins Memorial was actually unveiled in September of 1935 as part of an ongoing nationwide effort headed by the Jewish war veterans to highlight both 
Jewish American patriotism and their contributions during times of conflict. Unfortunately, the memorial today is um, not horribly accessible. Uh, you have to stand in the middle of the, the road to see the uh, memorial stone. So our goal is to uh, ensure safe access and provide a more dignified setting befitting recognition of Maine's first Jewish soldier who made the supreme sacrifice during World War I. Um, it's going to uh, be a much more welcoming plaza with symmetry in the approach of landscape materials and walkways will improve access and elevate the visibility uh, within what is quite popular part of our uh, park. So what's been the community and the veteran service organization involvement in the project? We reached out to the Jewish war veterans um, here in Portland, Maine, which actually bears uh, Jacob Cousins' name. So it's Post 99, the Jacob Cousins Post, um, and a actually World War II vet was head of that post named Mel Stone, who unfortunately uh, passed away. But he was included in the video for our grant application for the uh, 100 cities. They've been heavily involved. They've been extremely excited to see the renovation and really turning this area into a much more dignified place for, for both the um, memorial and for all soldiers, really. Are you planning a rededication this coming year? Yeah, so currently we, as a friends group, we work with the city of Portland, Maine to work on the design and uh, bidding process, and that's what we're in the middle of right now. We're hoping to begin the renovation here this spring, uh, once all the snow melts up here in Portland, and hopefully having a rededication project sometime in early summer, June, July, uh, with a uh, rededication and tying it into the 100-year memorial of the end of World War I, along with the city of Portland. Thank you for taking on this project for your community, and congratulations on being selected as a World War I Centennial Memorial. Thank you. We're excited to be a part of the project. Brandon Mazur, the project coordinator for the Jacob Cousins Memorial Renovation Project and the president of the Friends of the Eastern Promenade. If you have a local World War I Memorial Project that you want to submit for a grant, go to ww1cc.org slash 100 memorials or follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more about how to participate in the program. For our Spotlight in the Media segment this week, we're excited to announce the release of a new teaser trailer for the upcoming film, Sergeant Stubby, an American Hero. No. No? That word didn't exist in this dog's dictionary. He didn't understand the word. Nothing would get in his way. No, 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 no. Hey, hey, listen. Listen. Stay. No. Stay. Stay. Good. Snuff shutter! On your feet, then let's go! He was on a mission. Once on the team, he did everything like his soldier buddies, and soon he became one of them. All right, Stubbs. Here we go. Here. Oh. All it took was friendship and love to turn a little homeless dog into an unlikely hero. This animated film is based on the remarkable true story of the 26th Yankee Division's legendary mascot, Sergeant Stubby, a stray dog who became a hero of World War I. 
The film features the voices of actors Helena Carter, Gerard Depardieu, and Logan Lerman, among others. The movie will be in theaters nationwide on April 13, 2018, and I'm really looking forward to it. It's a great opportunity to tell a wonderful World War I story to our younger generation. But like all the great animated films today, it looks like it's going to be a genuine treat for the grown-ups, too. Follow the link in the podcast notes to watch the trailer and to read an interview with the film's writer-producer, Richard Laney. In articles and posts this week, we've launched a wonderful new web section all about horse heroes. It's a new website from Brook USA at www.cc.org horses. That's easy to remember. With us to tell us more about it is Joe Ellen Hayden, Special Project Volunteer for Brook USA Horse Heroes. Welcome, Joe Ellen. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to be here. So, Joe Ellen, we talked about Brook USA on the show earlier this year in episode number 13. But could you quickly remind our listeners about the origins of Brook USA? Yes. Brook is the world's largest international equine welfare charity. And it was founded in Egypt back in the early 1930s. There was a woman named Dorothy Brooke. She was the wife of a British Army officer who got stationed in Cairo. And when Dorothy arrived there, she found in the street some terrible-looking horses. They were emaciated, lame, in very, very bad condition, under terrible working conditions. And she realized some of them bore the brand of the British Army. When the British Army finished with World War I, they sold the animals that they had to the local populace. Some of those animals ended up in Egypt, and they were still alive in the early 1930s, which was rather remarkable given their care. And also, that was somewhat old for a horse at the time. These horses would have been well over 20. Dorothy was very compassionate. She wrote a letter to a major London newspaper, and she decided to have a fundraising campaign. And her idea was to buy these horses from the people who own them now at that time and then bring them back to England to live out their days. And so in the end, she did raise quite a bit of money just based on that one letter that got published in London. She bought up over 5,000 horses And from that has grown this incredibly large organization that works in the developing world now. All right. The new website at www.cc.org slash horses is one of the most in-depth publishing partner sites we have. What kinds of content can people find there? Everything that you might want to know about how horses and mules were used in World War I. Our focus is on American horses, and there were about 1.2 million American horses and mules went to Europe during the war. Very, very few of them, about 200, came back. And of those, about a million went as British or French purchases. Only about 250,000 went with the uh, American Expeditionary Force. So we're trying to show what their lives were like when they were there, what kind of work they did, how the shipping was handled across the ocean, what kind of harness and saddlery they wore, how they were trained for war, um, recovering the veterinary corps in the army and the diseases and injuries that were prevalent. 
what kind of impact poison gas had on the animals, how they were fed, and how that hay and grain got to France. It was many, many thousands of tons that were shipped. If you can imagine, there was a great deal more hay and grain shipped to France by both the British and the Americans than there was oil. So that tells you right there, these animals were doing far more of the horsepower work in, in the most general sense than were motorized vehicles. So then we're going to talk about what happened after the armistice, how these horses were disposed of, because that is in fact what happened. They were sold in place. And then we go into also some more general information about horses and mules, about their temperaments, why they act the way they do, how they experience the world as animals. Uh, this is not something we're making up. This is really well-known horsemanship. And then some information about things like the mud, the, the mud that was so prevalent in France, why was it there? And it particularly, of course, impacted animals that were trying to pull things through the mud sometimes falling into shell holes that were filled with water and immediately being up to their bellies or even higher in that mud and how difficult it was to get them out if they fell in. Many times those animals had to be shot in order to keep them from drowning, for instance. Okay, Joellen, you put untold hours into the site, but what surprised you most as you were putting it together? I have to say, even though I'm a historian by training, this was not my uh, my period of time that I studied closely. And so I really didn't know very much about, for instance, the mud, about conditions in the battlefield, about the trenches. I knew they existed, but I didn't know very much about them. So the whole environment, uh, even if this war had taken place even 10 years later, motorized vehicles would have been able to do the work that the horses and the mules did in this war. But that the, the motorized vehicle technology simply was not quite robust enough to handle the conditions in the battlefield. And I, I just didn't know that. So the numbers astonished me. Joe Ellen Hayden is a special project volunteer for Brook USA Horse Heroes. Check out the new site about horses and mules in World War I at www.cc.org horses. We also put a link in the podcast notes to our previous interview with Brook USA's Cindy Rollman. Another article from our rapidly growing website at www.cc.org. From the news section, there's a story of a bracelet's amazing journey over the last century. The bracelet belonged to an Irish woman serving in the U.S. Army Nurse Corps in France during World War I. It was recently returned to her relatives in Ireland. The bracelet was found 15 years ago by an 8-year-old boy in a schoolyard in northeastern France. Returning the bracelet led to a long and ultimately successful search for the descendants of its original owner. Click here to read more about the quest, whose story is so interesting that it spawned a documentary film in France. This week in our Write blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, this week's post reads, The Balfour Declaration, an Alternative History. If you love alternate history contemplations, you'll love this a lot. What if there had been no Balfour Declaration? What would the world look like today? 
These are questions that writer Simone Zelik, author of the novel Judenstadt, explores in this week's Write Blog. Don't miss this fascinating glimpse at an alternate past and a different future. Read the post at www.cc.org slash W-W-R-I-T-E, or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what have you picked to tell us about this week? Hello, Teo. We had some great content come through our Twitter feed this week, which you can follow at the handle at WW1CC. I particularly enjoyed an image from the Twitter account 100 en US on Haute-Marne, a photograph of some US Sigma Corps photographers. Not only is their equipment very cool, especially if you're a camera enthusiast, but their service produced some of the most incredible images of the war. During World War I, the Sigma Corps was responsible for communications. They also had other responsibilities, such as Army aviation until May 1918 and photography. The photographic section of the Corps was established in June 1917 and was responsible for the Army's official ground and aerial photography of the war. You can view a collection of the Signal Corps' World War I photography and the photo from Twitter by following the links in the podcast notes. Also from Twitter this week, an image of an interesting invention and a great example of necessity breeding innovation, the drip rifle. During the evacuation from Gallipoli, the Allied forces had to keep up the appearance of fully inhabited trenches, despite their numbers dwindling with each passing night as soldiers were evacuated under the cover of darkness. In order to keep up the ruse, Anzac soldiers developed the drip rifle, a rifle that would self-fire, thereby keeping the Turks convinced that the abandoned trenches were still occupied. In this particular image, two kerosene tins were placed, one above the other, the top one full of water and the bottom one with the trigger string attached to it, but empty. At the last minute, as the men retreated, small holes would be punched in the upper tin, the water would trickle into the lower one, and then the rifle would fire as soon as the lower tin had become heavy. Visit the links in the podcast notes to learn more about variations of drip rifles and how they saved the Allied retreat at Gallipoli. And that's it this week for The Buzz. Thank you for joining us again for World War I Centennial News for the second week of December 1917 and 2017. We want to thank our guests. Dr. Sean Adams, Professor of History and Chair at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. Candy Martin, Gold Star Mother and immediate past National President of the American Gold Star Mothers. Brandon Mazur from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Portland, Maine. Joe Ellen Hayden, Special Project Volunteer for Brook USA Horse Heroes. And Catherine Akey, the show's line producer. Special thanks to Eric Marr for his great help in our story research. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. And your listening to this podcast is a part of that, so thank you. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And, of course, we're building America's national World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. This week's featured webpage is www.cc.org horses. Discover the legacy of our horse heroes from World War I, courtesy of Brook USA.
We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn, on iTunes and Google Play at ww one Centennial News, and on Amazon Echo or other Alexa-enabled devices. Just say, Alexa, play ww one Centennial News Podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at ww1cc, and we're on Facebook at ww1centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget to share the stories you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. Uncle Sam is calling now for every mother's son to go and get behind his gun and see for glory waving on the sea. Now it's fair to be right there to have the cause along. To every camp you meet when you're on the street, you can sing this little song. Oh, Johnny, oh, Johnny, get right in line and help to crush the foe. You're a big, husky chap. Uncle Sam's in the square, you must go, Johnny, go, Johnny, go. Well, now we've done it. I was sitting there chatting with some of my friends who kept slapping my hands away and looking at me funny while I was trying to pick through their hair. Clearly, they're not listeners. So long. <laughs>